0: Verse 14 of Romans 15. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles, by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, In the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints." For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my way, go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints." Now, if you know the story in Acts, you know how much he needed prayers for this trip. We'll be looking at that, Lord willing, in the days ahead. That my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we looked last week at verses 14 to 16, which are what you might say the beginning of the end of this epistle of Paul to the Romans. <clears throat> uh, the main body of Romans, where Paul set forth the nature and applications of the gospel, ends at verse 13. And from verse 14 on to the end of the letter, he begins to address the Roman Christians on a more personal and intimate level as he starts to close out this letter. So here's his personal words to these people. And as we saw last time, Paul starts his closing with an encouragement and an explanation. He had never visited the church at Rome. Uh, The church there had not come into existence through his ministry like like Corinth that Andy was looking at this morning. Um, In fact, as we'll see when we get into chapter 16, there were people in the church at Rome who were actually Christians before Paul was. So they were already Christians, and they were aware maybe of this young, vehement hater of the church, the Apostle Paul, and they were Christians before him. At any rate, here he is writing this long letter to these people that he's never met, many of them, and exhorting them not to judge one another and things like that. And uh, they could get the wrong idea. They could think, well, he must think he's really superior to us, or he must think really lowly of us. And so he encourages them. He says he... he. uh, reassures them of His high regard for them in verse 14. He says, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. So, he doesn't want them to get the wrong impression by the fact that he's written such a full... I mean, this is a huge letter. Think of writing a letter like this to people that you don't know. He reassures them that he thinks highly of them. Nevertheless, because God had specifically called him, this was his burden in his ministry, to minister to Gentiles, and to be the apostle of the Gentiles, he feels a burden and a calling to help this church in any way that he can. And so <clears throat> uh, he says in verse 15, in the first part of 16, he says, I, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He's saying, I was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And that's why I've, I've been bold enough to write to you. So that's the gist of verses 14 to 16. But there were two things in particular uh, of importance in these verses that we looked at last week. And the first one was the fact that the biblical view of Christians is not that they're miserable, vile wretches, as some emphasize, but that they're new creatures, alive from the dead, beloved children of God, uh, holy and beloved, as he says in Colossians. And in the words of the Lord Jesus, Christians are good men who out of the good treasure of their hearts bring forth what is good. That's an amazing statement coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. And we know uh, that in an absolute sense there's none good but God and Jesus taught that as well. He has to mean it in a relative sense, but nevertheless, and even though it's true that we all fall infinitely short every day, and we could spend all of our time, this is also true, we could spend all of our time concentrating on how far short we fell in one day. But that's not the emphasis of the Bible. The emphasis of the Bible is that God has done a miracle in the hearts of Christians. And uh, it takes a miracle, like we said last week, it took a miracle for that thief to even be able to pray, Lord, remember me. That was a miracle. That was a miracle at a time when he looked the least like the king of a kingdom ever. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was miraculous. His eyes had been opened. And he saw that he was a sinner. And uh, that comes out there too. <clears throat> well, God has done a real miracle in the hearts of His children, and we should never minimize or sell us short. Second thing of importance, particularly that we saw last week, Paul takes the typology of the Old Testament priesthood, all those sacrifices and offerings, and he applies that not just to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know he was the great priest, and he offered the only true sacrifice. But there's more in that typology than that. And we know that there's also the picture of Christians as priests, Uh, offering up spiritual sacrifices. Peter talks about that. And in Hebrews it says we offer the sacrifice of praise. But Paul takes it and applies it in still a different way. And he says this is a picture of anyone who's involved in sharing the gospel with others and seeing someone become a Christian. That you have the privilege of offering them up to God as an offering Spiritually, symbolically, offering them up to God as an offering to Him, <clears throat> not as a slain animal as in the Old Testament, but as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And people who are no longer vile and unclean, but sanctified and made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit. They've been made saints. And it's it's amazing here. He doesn't say sanctified by the blood of Christ, which is ultimately true. The only way anybody can be acceptable to God is by the blood of Christ. But here he puts the emphasis on what the Holy Spirit has done. He's turned these Gentiles, these people like those there at Corinth, and he's put a principle of life in them and a principle of holiness in them. And it still has a long way to go to be worked out, but God has changed them at the root. The axe has been laid at the root. And so they're no longer sinners but holy ones. Saints. And so <clears throat> think of this. We have a privilege. What a privilege to have just one person we can offer back to God as a, as an acceptable sacrifice. I, I knew one brother who worked for years um, <clears throat> in a commercial type setting and he never saw anybody, and he was very discouraged, never saw anyone that he knew who ever become a Christian. And I think it was like ten years of working on the job, and his helper was converted. So here you've got a guy, maybe you poured, and think of Paul, he poured out, he, poured, he shed blood for his converts, those Gentiles, it cost him a lot to see the Gentiles converted. Being beaten when they left him for dead—you think of what when you beat some, when you stone somebody. What it takes when you leave them for dead—I mean, it's incredible that he ever walked away from that. And uh, um, being beaten with rods, he says, and and uh, scourged more than once. Uh, all of those things he was enduring, he says, for the sake of the elect, so when you think of what it had cost him to minister to the Gentiles, and all he goes into lists of it, think of what it would be like to see Gentiles who had been converted through his ministry, and he says, i'm offering them back to god, and even though god's the one that did the work it's still it's a it's a glorious thing to have a part in that and be able. And in a very real way, he, and we're going to get to that today, Christ did it through him. And so he could offer them back to God. And what joy he would have had in doing that. Well, today then, we come to verses 17 to 19. <clears throat> and what a glimpse they give us into the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Let's just read them again. Therefore, in Christ Jesus. I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Notice first of all, that we see Paul boasting or glorying here in the things that have been accomplished through his ministry. And that seems to be, in some sense, directing us towards himself. He's boasting about what has been accomplished through his ministry. But then side by side with that, we see something else that almost seems contradictory. We see all the boasting is centered around Christ and what he's done. So verse 17, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. And verse 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. It's something he doesn't say the things that I've accomplished through the power of Christ. He says the things that Christ has has accomplished using me as just an instrument. And so... Um, the question comes up what is paul doing here and why is he doing it what what does all this mean and if all we had was this passage we wouldn't be able to give much of an answer to that but god has given us an extended commentary on it in second corinthians and even in first corinthians somewhat so i want us to look a little bit at uh, parallel passages in second corinthians if you just turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> we'll just go through some verses first. On uh, verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. And then verse 13, But we will not boast... Beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God appointed to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. In verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere even enlarged, enlarged even more by you so as to preach the Gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Doesn't it sound just like what we read in Romans? He's wanting to reach out to the regions beyond. He's wanting to not build on another man's foundation. And he says in verse 17, but he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. In Christ he's found reason for boasting. In verse 10 of chapter 11, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. In verse 12, he says, What I am doing I will continue to do, that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. And then in uh, um, let's see verse seventeen or verse sixteen, Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do receive me even as foolish, that I also may boast a little. Verse seventeen, that which I'm speaking, I'm not speaking as the Lord would, but in foolishness, In this confidence of boasting, verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. And verse 30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And chapter 12, verse 1, boasting then is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then in verse 5 of chapter 12, On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do not wish. For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And then in verse 9, He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now this is talking about His thorn in the flesh. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, all this talk about boasting, but you see the parallels with Romans 15. And he specifically mentions things about his ministry and uh, about signs and wonders. We haven't gotten to that yet, but uh, um, well, let me just read that. I might as well, verse 12 of chapter 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Same thing he says in Romans 15. So what was the situation at Corinth? Well, as you read through here, apparently these men, uh, the the Corinthians, were being influenced by men who were drunken with power, claiming all kinds of power. And... uh, claiming signs and wonders, boasting in visions, and signs and wonders and power. And Paul calls them false apostles. And to protect the Corinthians, he's forced to defend his own apostleship. These false apostles, he calls them super apostles, they came in there and they said, we're the ones that really have the power. Who's that guy? And he... Not to, not to put himself forward, but to try to protect them, he reminds them and tries to show them the reality of uh, the fact that he is an apostle. <clears throat> now, there are two things I want us to get here and we're going to bring these back to Romans. First of all, Paul does not disparage power as such. He doesn't disparage signs and wonders and visions and so on. Uh, healings tongues prophecy you read through Corinthians first and second corinthians he never disparages those things uh, right here um, in twelve twelve that we read he says that he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance signs and wonders and miracles um, Normally he doesn't talk about personal things, but he even is willing to do that. He goes back in First Corinthians 14, uh, they were so taken up with tongues. And Paul says, I thank God that I speak with tongues more than all of you. Well, we would have never known that Paul spoke with tongues. But he did, and he only brings it out in order to help them. Because he said, whenever I come to you, I'd rather speak five words and that you can understand. So he wouldn't have even mentioned this except he's trying to help them. Again, uh, what we read here in chapter 12, verse 1, he goes into visions and revelations of the Lord and he talks about this experience that he had 14 years previous where he heard uh, inexpressible words and so on. So Paul says since these men are making such a big thing of all this, Even though it's not the center of everything, for for your sakes, um, I'll tell you some of the things that I've experienced. And so, um, Paul is not uh, uh, down on these things as such. Um, He's willing to talk about these things in his life. And just put it this way, beloved, Paul was not short on miracles. He wasn't short on power. And he doesn't say that power is nothing. But here's the second side, the other side of the story. Paul says that even though Christians have tasted of the powers of the age to come, they're still living in weakness in this world. That's what these false apostles were leaving out. Their idea is what's been called triumphalism. That is, Christians are all, you know, God always heals you, you're always wealthy. You never go through, you've you got your foot on the neck of your enemies. You're always released from prison if they get you in prison. Of course, those guys wouldn't have even been in prison. But that's the kind of stuff that they were teaching. And Paul says, no, we live in this age of weakness. These super apostles who want you to believe that true spirituality always consists in healing and that kind of thing are actually false apostles. Because God has set things up in a way that He's most glorified in the weakness of His people. Now this is quite a thing. He has set things up so that those servants who are most dependent and most weak, He gets the most glory out of. We don't like that idea. We like the idea that if a guy is really pleasing to God... He's not going to have headaches every day, and he's not going to have a, a curvature of the spine like Amy Carmichael did, and all, that's see, those are wrong, that's Corinthian ideas. that's carnal ideas. And it may well be that God's going to give the one the choice of servant going to give them weakness if we looked at, it, we said, well, I know one thing, I, never would, I would never have had so-and-so have that sickness. Why would so and so die when they're in their twenties? You know, look at how God's using them and that kind of thing. You see, he does that. That's and if we have the idea that the Christian life is going to be triumphalistic, we've got a wrong idea. And Paul wants to get across to these Corinthians and it comes up over and over and over. God has set up things in such a way that he keeps his servants weak and dependent. Uh, We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Some people think, and there's some evidence for this, that he had some kind of disease with his eyes that caused his eyes to matter and he was bad to look at even. And he talks about his infirmities that um, they didn't despise the way he looked. They took him in and so on. But think of this in contrast to these so-called super apostles. Here is an apostle. He comes in sick. You don't have a sick apostle. You know, that was their idea. And think of it. I think this really did happen. I think the apostle Paul, if he did have this eye condition with his eyes running and mattering and everything, I think he prayed for people to be healed, that were healed right while he had it. Is't that something? because he prayed to the Lord three times that he'd take it away and he said, no, I'm not going to. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I think that, I think that was the case, and often it's that way. God's using a man over here in some way to save and help other people and heal other people when he's got some affliction that isn't healed. It's amazing. True men and women of God often minister in weakness. Paul um, even says in one place, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, he says we were pressed beyond measure so that we despaired even of life. Here's the Apostle thinking, I'm not going to make it. That's how pressed he was. Let me just read to you from... the. Just to give you a feel for this theme, this is it. Back in First Corinthians, he says he's talking about superiority. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive, and so on? Then he says, "This you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings, so that we might also reign with you." For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. Well, ah, look, if you were pleasing to God, you'd have all kinds of food. No, he, did. he said, We're hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated. Here's the apostle, you shove him around. He's not riding on men's shoulders, you know, seated in a chair. Total opposite. He's getting shoved around, roughly treated, and are homeless. You know, you say, I took in this homeless guy. Well, what's his name? Apostle Paul. (laughs) And we toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Even until now, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you, as my beloved children. So see what's going on. That explains First and Second Corinthians. It explains what's going on. You say, "Wow, he's really making a lot. He's boasting all the time that he's trying to help them to keep these immature believers from being led astray and shipwrecked by by hearing this false stuff." And so, in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about boasting in his weakness that the power of Christ might dwell in him. Now, <clears throat> beloved, this is a big thing. And just hearing it, you may not get it, but it's a big thing. But we find ourselves always reverting back to this mindset. That that if you're really pleasing God, you know you'll be on the cover of some glossy magazine. That wasn't the way it was with the apostles. So there's these two things. There is such a thing as the manifest power of God. Miraculous healing, signs and wonders, dreams and visions. But the men who are doing such things for real are not driving Rolls Royces and living in multi-million dollar homes. They don't have their faces on the cover of glossy magazines. They're often suffering and persecuted and ministering in weakness and sickness. And you can think back in church history. John Calvin, you read about his life, constant headaches and other severe problems. David Brainerd, there he's out, he's got tuberculosis. He's a young guy in his 20s, late 20s. Praying out there for the Indians, coughing blood out onto the snow. And what? He said when, when the Spirit of God was moved, He could speak to the Indians as gently as He could possibly know how about the love of God. And they could not remain seated in their chairs. They'd fall to the ground hearing about the love of God. What's that? Power. Not power, not senseless deal, where you wave your hand and people fall over, but the real power of God attending the gospel message, and that's what Paul constantly brings up the power attending you received it not as a, as the word of man, but what it is in truth, the word of God, but power perfected in weakness. Amy Carmichael, I mentioned her curvature of the spine. Bunches of people, that Gladys Allward, little woman, they turned her down. You're not fit to go to the mission field. <laughs> she ended up going and being mightily used from God there. Spurgeon. You know, if there was anybody that had the, the mind and power of somebody like Spurgeon, you'd keep him healthy, you know. Well, he was hurting so bad, sometimes he was about to die from pain. He had gout and other conditions. Crying out to God in terrible anguish. Darlene Rose, some of you have heard or read that account of her. There she is, emaciated, prisoner of war, standing there before a Japanese commander who had kicked a man to death with his boots. And the power of God is resting upon her in her weakness. And that commander, hearing the Gospel message, hearing the love of God, seeing the power of God upon her, goes into the other room and is sobbing so loud that she can hear Him in the other room. Think of this. It's power perfected in weakness. And Paul puts it like this. He says, Death works in us, but life in you. And a lot of times, the life is working in the other person right while the death is working in you. When you feel the most miserable. When you feel like nothing's going on. When you're suffering. It's exactly the opposite of the way the world thinks. It's exactly the opposite of the way these super apostles were thinking. And it's the opposite of the way carnal Christians think. And we've all got this tendency, and repeatedly we go back to it in our minds. Well, if that, I mean, just like with Job, you see, I could see if this brother had one problem, a good night, he's got this and he's got this, his kids were just killed, he's covered with boils, all this and this and this. There must be something wrong. He must, there's some kind of sin. That's the very thing his friends did. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will boast in my weakness. Amazing thing. There's a dear sister uh, right now who's over here in the States for treatment for whatever it is, Lyme's disease, they think. But so weak, somebody had to accompany her to get here. I don't know of anybody more powerfully used in the conversion of college students. So weak, you have to have somebody else help you get up. Now, why would God do that? I mean, think of how much more you could accomplish if you felt good and all that. Well, sometimes it's His will to heal, but there are things that we don't, He's doing that we don't understand. So, back to Romans then Romans 15. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's defending, in verses 17-19, to 19, he's defend, defending his apostleship to these Roman Christians who as a group don't really know him. And <clears throat> He's doing it for their sakes that they might rest at ease about him and that they might be able to receive from him everything that he has to give to them. So he takes some time here <clears throat> to defend his apostleship and the power of God and what God has accomplished through him. But he wants them to be very clear that it's not what he's done, it's what Christ has done. Using him as an instrument who has no power or life of his own. You think of our brother that ministers in Central Asia, who's actually over there right now. Uh, If you look at it, he's constantly i mean it comes through so clearly his weakness that's what that's why it's so glorious that's why christ gets so much glory and we it's not that we and when you hear about something miraculous that's taken place it's wonderful to hear that too i'm thankful he's not holding those things back because in the midst of the weakness god is showing his power God helping him in times of extreme weakness or vulnerability to have supernatural wisdom and strength. And that's when Christ gets the glory, and that's the mark of a true man of God. Well, verse 18, Paul says that his ministry has resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles. And I think the phrase, by word and deed, actually goes with his ministry, not with the Gentiles. But, his ministry (coughs) has resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles. And this is just Paul's way of saying that they had become Christians. If you go back into chapter 1, he talked about this as well. Let me read it to you. Though uh, Through whom, that is through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So there's the same thing. He's talking about conversion. The obedience of faith. Beloved, the Bible does not recognize any kind of obedience as being true if it does not flow from faith. You cannot do anything from God until you give up on doing and put your trust in Christ and realize you're never going to make it. You're never going to be good enough. You try real hard to be a Christian. You can't. And you just give up and trust in what Christ has done. But that leads then, the other side of the coin, the Bible doesn't recognize any kind of faith that doesn't result in obedience. If you have real faith, you're, it's, in other words, putting your faith in Christ is not going forward in a meeting. And say, well, I got that done now, you know, like, like your flu shot or whatever. I got that done, now I can go back to living for myself all the time it's Jesus says, if anyone if anyone wants to be a Christian, if you want to be a christian, if you want to come after me, let that man deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That means you 've got to die to your own life. He that seeks to save his life will lose it. very clear so <clears throat> Paul says his ministry was for the obedience of the Gentiles. And then at the end of verse 18, beginning of 19, Paul tells something about the things that characterized his ministry. First of all, he says it was by word and deed. Paul's ministry was by word and deed. <clears throat> and again, you have to have both. Well, I don't ever say anything about the Lord, but I try to set an example. That's not that won't work. I mean the gospel is conveyed by words. It's not conveyed by osmosis. They think otherwise they end up thinking, Wow, that guy's really a great guy. If you don't say anything about the Lord. Paul was going out to the synagogues and marketplaces and forums preaching the gospel. He did it by word and deed, didn't he? Listen to this. He set an example. Listen to this. This is from Acts 20. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's an apostle working day and night with his hands. I mean, could you imagine the Apostle Paul? You think, well, you need to go hold up up there and study your Bible. I mean, one of the greatest examples: Bill McLeod up there in Canada would walk in the bush, which they called where you go for miles back up through the woods, following a trail where they've they've taken all their equipment up to a, to a mining a log. I mean, a logging camp, and you could follow that trail through the bush. And finally, you get to a camp. Uh, I've told the story of one time. He got to the camp, got to, got to where he could see the camp across the lake, and it was springtime, and there was several inches of slush on top of the ice, and he didn't want to ruin his boots, so he took them off and carried them, and walked through the slush. Have you got? <laughs> I can't imagine. And he got to the other side, and the and the. Foreman, the boss of the logging camp said, uh, he said to him, "Can I? would I have permission to preach to your men? He said, Mister, anybody that would walk across that lake barefooted in that slushy ice, you ha- you're welcome to preach to my men. So what did he do? Well, he didn't do what I would be tempted to do. He didn't go and pray all day and hold up. He got out and worked with the men all day cutting logs. Isn't that amazing? And then he preached to them. It's incredible. It's what Paul did. He's working, doing this leather work, you know, tent making, which is really a broader term like a leather worker of some kind. But he's, he's doing this work the whole time. First Thessalonians, We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Well, that's what Paul means when he says by word and deed. There's a lot... A lot of that little phrase, isn't it? By word and deed, He did it. And then He says, in the power of signs and wonders. What does that mean? Well, let's look a little bit in the book of Acts and we'll see what it means. We're not going to quite make it through verse 17, it looks like, but that's fine. We'll take up next time. <clears throat> In the power of signs and wonders. Acts 13. Let's just read a little bit of what Paul's talking about. This is talking about Paul going out. Paul and Barnabas. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. But Elamas the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind, not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at what? The teaching of the Lord. (laughs) Being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. See, it's not word only, but also in power and full assurance. In chapter 14, here's Paul again. And it says, it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who were disobedient stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord." Who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hand. That's what Paul's talking about when he writes to the Roman. Eight to ten of this same chapter at Lystra, there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. In verses 48 and 49, oh, let's see, I'm ahead of myself. Uh, Chapter 16, verses 16 to 18, it happened as they were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out, at that very moment. And then in verses 25 and 26, at midnight Paul and Silas are praying and they're in the prison, and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains fell off. He says, I I went around. (laughs) Think of it. The amazing thing is he doesn't try to prove this. He just states it as a given. This is an authentic everybody agree. Even the most liberal liberals agree that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. And here he is saying, you know, I went in the power of signs and wonders all through that whole region. And he did. Luke tells about what it was and Luke's oftentimes saying, "We, we were that we we stopped here and this is what happened." Amazing. Well, we'll just look at one more in chapter 19. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. And there's this story of the Jewish exorcist. They tried. They, verse 13, they adjured this demon, "I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and the seven sons of one Scribe, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this." And the evil spirit answered and said to them, "I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you?" And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued both of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. They counted up the price of them and found it fifty thousand pieces of silver, a lot of money. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Well, Paul, <clears throat> Paul says. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders and in the power of the spirit There's the other ingredient isn't it the power of the spirit Let's just take maybe we can take the time we're not doing too bad here let's look at back in acts again Some examples of the power of the Spirit. Let me just read them to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the Word of God. That's the power of the Spirit. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. That's the work of the Spirit. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, Luke is with Paul right here, she urged us saying, If you judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to him together with all who were in his house, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. He and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. The Spirit of God moving. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women, important people. Now these were more noble than those in Thessalonica for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. Think of that. At Berea. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. These are the types of things that were going on. This in the ministry of Apollos, some of these things in the ministry of Paul. Paul. So, you get a feel for what was the power of the Spirit. It wasn't just signs and wonders. It was people being powerfully converted. Anytime all those people that were in all those magic arts and what have you bring out those expensive books publicly burning them, that's a move of the Spirit of God. Oh, how we need these things. Our fathers have told us Men like Duncan Campbell, the revival in South Africa, multitudes. In that revival, multitudes of blind people were healed. And multitudes of Zulu tribesmen converted. I got a tape uh, from one of the men who was used greatly in that revival, telling about it was on healing, and I thought, wow, this is going to be something I get. Get to hear all these testimonies about healing because I'd heard a lot of them. I mean, people, blind people, immediately healed and that kind of thing. He spent the entire tape trying to teach these new converts the difference between a witch doctor and a regular doctor. What's that? That is miraculous when people like that become Christian. That's the power of the Spirit. It's really bigger than having blind people heal. You're talking about spiritually. An incredible miracle. That's what Paul means when he says, by the power of the Spirit. Well, the result was... I guess I will finish the message. The result was that from Jerusalem round about as far as Illyricum, he had fully preached the Gospel of Christ. I just want to close by showing you a slide A map of this region that Paul's talking about. So, if you guys could help move this thing again. We're not going to put the screen down this time, but we'll just show it on the wall. Can you see that fairly well? Jerusalem, at the end up there is Illyricum, and that's modern day Albania, and he says round about, well, he didn't go like that, but he came up through here, and here's Damascus uh, where he was born, Er, or Tarsus, sorry, but he was on his way to Damascus when he was converting, but up here, uh, there's Tarsus. Up here is Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, places where he got beaten and what have you. And so he's just getting on his way, going over. Here's uh, Philadelphia, and Sardis, Thyatira. And he was up in this region, um, and it says we tried to go to Bithynia. I, don't, I, I couldn't find the pointer, we used to have a stick. But, but Bithynia is right up there. And he had a vision of a man from Macedonia which is over here saying, come over. So they came down, you read this all in the book of Acts, they came down to Troas, and they went over to Macedonia and, and went up to Philippi. So this is, what he's saying, down here is Ephesus. He stayed there for a couple of years, and it says, all Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord, which of course we know not every person, but this whole area, This area here is Galatia, and the capital was, and I think it's A-N-C-Y-R-A, which is is Ankara, the capital of modern day Turkey, still the capital. And that's, this is Turkey. So this is what Andy was talking about. Here's Corinth. It was a massive city and it had a seaport on both sides. And, of course, seaport towns are notorious for the way they are. A church raised up there. Paul was here when he wrote this letter to the Romans. And uh, he was staying at Corinth, and he's not made it all the way up there yet. That's where he wants to go. But he's just wanting to stop there for a while on his way further to Spain. Think of Spain over there. But, anyway, all this area here. He said, think of this. He says, I have fully preached the Gospel of Christ in that area. Mm -hmm. And now since there's no room for me anymore here, I need to go on. Incredible. Mm -hmm. That's what we'll be looking at, Lord willing, next time. What an amazing thing. This is the guy. I mean, you start the book of Romans. Paul... An apostle of Jesus Christ. That right there is miracle from one end to the other. This is the guy that was breathing out threatenings and slaughter who every Christian knew was the last person to become a Christian and he was converted and did this work.